Church, how are we doing? Man, it's awesome to be here. My name is Todd. I get to hang out with you guys every now and then. I'm part of the team here at Watermark, and it is awesome to be here with you guys and around the country that are tuning in. And we are talking about self-care. And we're specifically here, not kind of having some myopic, self-centered obsession. We're not spiritual narcissists. But we know that we're blessed to be a blessing. And so if we don't take care of ourselves, if we're not taking care of who we are, we can't be caregivers. And so this series, Self-Care, we're wrapping up tonight and we're talking about probably the most important thing you can do. People sometimes ask me, because of my role here at Watermark in Dallas, you know, which is... Um, grown to be something of you know, pretty significant uh, responsibility and size, they just said, man, Todd, what, what's the most difficult thing about leading this community? And my answer is always the same, and it comes quickly. And that is, the most difficult thing for me to lead at Watermark is me. If I can control me, if I can discipline myself, if I can do the things that I need to do, it's amazing how much everything else just falls in the line. But you need to know something. It is hard to discipline me. Uh, I heard a guy say a long time ago, man, if there was a radio station, uh, you know, named after him, he would tune into it all the time. You know, K. Todd, you know, all Todd, all the time. I would tune into it. It's just a fact. I love me some me. That's who I am. As a person who has been separated from the God who cares for us. Let me tell you why that's who I am apart from the grace that has invaded my life. Have you ever noticed that you pay attention to um, certain parts of your body only when they're jacked up? Right? Like how many of you guys thought about your elbow today? The answer is everybody who banged their elbow. That's who thought about their elbow. How many of you guys thought about your kneecap? The answer is, those of you that got up in the dark and you forgot that dagnum little coffee table was there and you were walking and you smacked your knee, you thought about your kneecap. How many of y'all thought about that left finger on your, uh, on your left hand, right? That, that third one right here. All right, well, that's a bad example for a bunch of singles because you probably thought about that a lot. But let me just say this to you guys, all right, just for a second. The reason you think about certain body parts is because something's wrong with them. When you obsess over something or your brain says, hey, we're going to give some attention and some care to that thing, it's because that thing is throbbing. That thing is not operating the way it should. And it's saying, I need some attention. Let me just tell you something. When you're self-obsessed, when you are uh, consumed with uh, how you're being perceived, or when you turn in to your self-infatuation and your pleasure and your life plan all the time, it's because something is broken there. It's screaming out, this isn't how it should be. But when you see somebody that is at a sense of peace and is not riddled by anxiety or despair or self-love and gloating and Pride, you just come into something really glorious and beautiful there. I, I love the statement when a, when a man or a woman forgets themselves, they usually start to live in a way that everybody else remembers. Because most of the people you meet, man, they're just throbbing in pain. And they're reaching out either to use you because they think you've got something that will give them life, or they're trying just to get you to give them something that you think will have 
life. And that's not the way God created us. And so if you want to be a person that, that can really care for others, that can be that person that forgets themselves and to live in a way that everybody else remembers, then you got to learn to care for yourself. And man, God wants you to know he, the best way to care for yourself is to come to the one who cares for you. That's what he says. Man, cast all your anxieties on me. Why? Because I care for you. There's an old uh, statement you know, that, that's in the scripture again and again and again. That's this. It's God's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you in due time. And, and I love the statement that if you try and do God's job, what's God's job in that little syllogism I just gave you, right? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you in due time. If you try and do God's job, which is to exalt yourself, then he will do yours, which is to humble you. Because none of us can care for ourselves and produce for ourselves what our soul was created for, which is to be in intimate relationship with the God who is and who loves and who gives grace and glory. It's who God is. I mean, if there's a little catchphrase, right, of my life, it's become this. God's not looking to rip you off. He's looking to set you free. But let me read you some scripture just for a second. It's found in 1 Timothy chapter 4. And this is what it says, that the Spirit, meaning God, has just told us explicitly, which is like without any confusion, the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, and man, we're living in them, some will fall away from the faith. In fact, many people, this is even people that are around spiritual conversations, they're going to fall away. They're not going to maintain the devotion to that which ultimately helps men live and women live with a sense of peace. They're going to pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And you're like, oh my goodness. Spirits and demons, man, how do we deal with those? Let me just tell you something. The way you deal with deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, and I'm going to tell you what deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons are in just a second, Biblically, is not to cast them out and not to bind them. The Bible doesn't say we bind Satan. Satan won't be bound until a much later part of God's kingdom program. Right now, he's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And what you're going to find out is Satan has no power to create. All he has the power to do is destroy. All he has the power to do is to take what God says is good and right and beautiful and true and deceive you that it's bad and boring and life sucking when in fact it's life-giving. He is a deceiver. He doesn't create anything beautiful. He just deceives you into thinking that which seems right to you, but in the end is the way of death, is the right way to live. The way we deal with demons biblically is not to cast them out, it's to bring truth in. That's what we do. It's always a truth encounter. It's never a power encounter. I want you to think about this for a second, okay? Jesus is, is the light of the world. He came in the world, the scripture says, to, to, to bring them light. He is life and light. And where there was death that was ruling sinful humanity that was separated from a God who is life, he came to bring life. Where there was darkness and a lack of understanding, he came to bring light. How do you deal with darkness in your house? What do you do? Do you get in there and cast out the darkness? Do you try and grab it and have a power encounter with the darkness and grab it and take it and throw it outside? No, the way that you get rid of the darkness is what? You bring light in. 
Darkness can't handle light. That's all darkness is. It's the absence of what should be. It's like you can't make cold. All we can do is produce heat. Cold is the absence of heat. Darkness is the absence of light. That's all that it is. And so I'm going to tell you what the doctrines of demons and deceitful spirits are. And I'm going to tell you how we're going to handle them in order to not be deceived. The doctrines of demons and the, the deceitful spirits that are in this world that are destroying people it's going to be spelled out right here, basically in verses two and three, but it all is wrapped up in this. When God says, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Demons say, you better work hard to get life and bring yourself to God in such a way that he'll maybe decide to let you in a little bit on his blessing. The doctrines of demons and deceitful spirits is that man must earn his way to God. You're going to see it spelled out right here. There are, there are men by means of hypocrisy, of liars, seated in their own conscience with a branding iron, men who will watch this, forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. In other words, the, the works-based mentality. And this is why sometimes when people say, man, Todd, are you a religious person? I don't ever answer that yes or no, because I just want to always understand what you mean by religion. And if you, what you mean by religion is what most people are talking about when they talk about religion, which is I do these things and eventually God will make a decision about how I've done. Then I would say, I'm not a religious person. Religion ultimately is what man does, but Christianity, the story of the scriptures, you need to know so many people in this room still even think that what this is is a rule book. It's a bunch of morals and you better open it up and you better do what it says or you're not gonna get done what you want done, which is to be okay when you meet God. No, this is not a rule book. What this is, a revelation. It's a rescue story of God's love for you. He explains why our world is filled with so much chaos, why it's so hurting, why it's throbbing in war and pain and poverty because we have left the God who brings order and beauty in life. And then he cares for us. And so God pursues us and he runs after us. And this book tells us who God is. And he says, for sure, I'm holy. For sure, I'm, I'm, I'm beautiful and perfect and holy and blameless. And I can have no fellowship with those that aren't like me. And I'm a just God. And so I've got to judge what is not and what should not be. But because I love you, I'm going to make provision for those of you that have contributed to that chaos. And I'm going to show you a way back to me. And I'm going to pay a debt that I did not owe. And being an eternally perfect creature, I'm going to need an eternally perfect sacrifice. And guess what? I'm the only one that can provide that. And so God told you it was coming. And then he brought that great promise in the person of his son who said, I'm going to do something for you that you can't do. I'm going to go someplace you can't go. I'm going to go before God and I'm going to offer my life as a living, I mean, as a perfect sacrifice. God's going to make me Though I'm rich to become poor, so that through my poverty you might become rich. And demons are going to tell you that you're rich enough in good works. And I'm going to tell you that my standard's perfection, and none of you have met it. And I'm, I'm not mad at you. I'm sad that you're broken in your imperfection. I'm going to rescue you from that. And the way to rescue you from that is not to tell you to stop. But I'm going to show you how good I am and love you. I'm going to make provision for you. And then I'm going to call you to follow me making up for every failure that you've got. But I'm not going to tell you to forbid marriage 
and advocate abstaining from certain foods and not drink coffee or eat pork. What I'm going to tell you to do is to trust in me. And anybody who tells you the way to get to God is through your own works is a teaching a doctrine of demon and is a deceiving spirit. This is such an amazing verse right here in verse four. You need to know this. Everything created by God is good. Everything. Man, sex is good. We at the porch here and, and, and any place the Bible is taught, we don't say sex is bad, stay away from it. We say sex is good. What's not good is to use it poorly. My classic illustration of this is like, you know, I think about like, you know, when my, my, my sons, you know, turned a certain age, like if, if we lived out, you know, where we chop wood to heat our house and to uh, cook our food, you know, that'd be a pretty big deal, right? To, to get a chainsaw for your 16th birthday, right? That'd be a pretty big gift. And if I gave my sons a chainsaw and we needed to chop wood both for a living, maybe to sell and also to, to warm our house and cook our food, and I gave them a chainsaw, they'd be like, it's an amazing thing. Chainsaw's a glorious thing. But if they used the chainsaw as dental floss, that good gift that I gave them would be a problem, wouldn't it? The problem wasn't the chainsaw. The problem was how they used this beautiful thing. What did I tell you about Satan? He's not a creative God. He can't give you anything. All he can do is take a good thing and distort it. Can I just tell you this? I mean, everything, including cocaine, including heroin, including marijuana, including alcohol. All of those things were created by God and are good if they are, watch this, sanctified by the word of God in prayer. And I go, wait a minute, did Todd just say that those things are good? And the answer is yes, when they're sanctified by the word of God in prayer. All those things are, are derivative of plants that God has made that frankly, when we use them right now in modern science correctly, and we haven't been exactly using fentanyl correctly and hydrocodone correctly in the way we're dealing with some people right now that are coming even out of normal surgeries. But when we use medicines correctly, it's a means of grace for people. When we use them incorrectly as street drugs or, or um, inappropriately overly prescribed, it brings destruction. But when you're sanctified by the wisdom of God and using the way that he created them, sex all the way to heroin, they can be a blessing to humankind. And all I want to do is just tell you that your God loves you. Your father loves you. Learn to use these things correctly. Watch this. He cares for you. In verse six, he says, I'm pointing out these things to the brethren. You'll be a good servant of Jesus Christ, that God is good and that he loves you and that he's come to you. You don't got to make your way to him. That's the doctrine of demons. Works. Can I say it to you one more time? God has demonstrated his love for you. And while you're still throbbing in your insecurity and in your reaching after things, meaning taking God-given things and using them in a God-forbidden way and having legitimate needs that God gave you met in an illegitimate way that doesn't bring a blessing to you but guilt and shame, God's trying to rescue you from that and set your mind right and tell you that there's grace there at the cross and then begin to let you use those things in a way that is life-giving and is going to be caring for your soul and not destructive to your soul. He says, when you teach people the goodness of God and how to know him by grace through faith and walk with him and use all the beauty of God's creation well, then it says, in that moment, you're a good servant of Jesus Christ because God loves people. People that are going to then constantly nourish others on the words of the faith and on the sound doctrine which you have been following. But watch this, have nothing to do with worldly fables. The way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. 
Fit only for old women speculating and gossiping and bittering, Paul would say. But on the other hand, watch this. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit. But godliness is profitable for all things. It's the whole promise for this present life and the life to come. Let me just give you the first little point I want you guys to get tonight. And that is that as a person who cares for yourself, Okay, it's okay, and we talked about this last week, it's okay to eat right and to exercise, you should, but when you obsess about your physical appearance, it's because you're hurting. When you, when you take food that God has given you and you binge on it for comfort reasons, it's because you're hurting. When, when you live to eat instead of eat to live, it's because you're hurting. Life is more than food and clothing. And God loves you and he wants you to enjoy food, but he doesn't want you to be ruled by food. He doesn't want you to be ruled by exercise. When you see somebody, this is just a warning, when you see somebody that is so sharp and so put together that it looks like they might be the most important thing in their world, chances are it's because they and their body is the most important thing in their world and they do not a good life mate make. It's a fact that you should spend more time on your inside than your outside. More time on your inside than your outside. Now, this is a lot easier uh, to say than it is to do, but let me just say one of the things that um, I do to care for my soul is I have just regular daily Bible intake. One of the things we did here a number of years ago is we, we decided to help people with that. So we, we created this thing called Join the Journey. Join this journey through God's word with us as we try and figure out more of who this God is that loves us and isn't asking us to perform for him, but is asking us to understand his provision for us. And so we created something called Join the Journey. If you've never heard of it before, there's an app online, Join the Journey. Just download that thing. And every single day, we will send you a short 300-word devotional. We'll have a little scripture right there that it's on the app. You just hit the play button. You can listen to it as you drive. And then you can go back and read it right there in the app. There's a little devotional question that's there, a central truth that takes away from the passage. And then just some application questions. And then check this out. If you're confused by something you read, you can go right there on the app and just type in and say, man, this confused me. I don't understand what this means. It wasn't really addressed in the 300 word devotional. And people will respond personally to you. I was in, um, uh, join the journey today. All right. And we're reading right now, just in, in the book of Genesis. And, and I was reading the story of Joseph. Now, if you don't know much about the story of Joseph, Joseph is a historical figure, but he's what's called a type of Christ. In other words, he anticipates the provision that, um, God was later going to provide people through Jesus Christ. He's a picture of that. So let me tell you the story of Joseph. Joseph is there. His brothers are jealous of him. He knows that God is using him in a unique way. He knows that one day he will provide life for his brothers. His brothers don't like hearing that, so they reject him and they leave him after they beat him for dead. They think he's dead, but in fact, he's not dead. And what they intended for evil, God is going to use for good. And he puts Joseph ultimately in a place where he's ascended to the right hand of the most sovereign of all to where the brothers then come to their poverty and need. They go to avail themselves to ask for grace only to find out that the one that is there that they need grace from is the one that they betrayed and left for dead. But what they intended for evil, God was going to use for good. That story sound familiar? That he came into his own and his own received him not. And they beat him and left him for dead. 
and they didn't know that he was God's provision. And even though he told them he was God's provision, they rejected that idea. And then instead of being mad at those that beat him, he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing, what they intended for evil. I'm going to use for good. What kind of God does that? Well, the God of Joseph. God who is Jesus. But this is what was so interesting when I was just reading about this today in, in, um, in Genesis 39, verse 6, it says this. So he, meaning um, uh, the, 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 the leader and, and uh, Pharaoh, left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. And with him, he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. And then it makes this observation. It says, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. A little bit later, and actually it's talking about Potiphar here, not Pharaoh at this point in the story. We find out that Potiphar's wife agreed with Moses when he wrote that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance because she went after this bad boy, all right? <laughs> Kept kind of throwing himself, herself at him. And eventually one day when he was alone in the house and nobody else was there, she came at him, you know, um, and, and when he just resisted and he fleed, fled immorality, this good man, uh, she grabbed his cloak and, and then when he left out, she was embarrassed and ashamed. And so she screamed rape and she held his coat and would not be consoled until her master, her husband came home. The scripture says, and she said that Hebrew slave that you have here in our house, he tried to rape me and Joseph was thrown in jail. But God was at work in the midst of all that. And you need to go read the story because it's an amazing story. But when God made Joseph, it says he made him this way. Now, what's so interesting is that when Jesus came, this is the prophecy about who Jesus would be. Isaiah chapter 53, verse two, really verses two down through 13, have the clearest picture of the work of the coming um, Messiah that Joseph is gonna be a, a picture of. And this is what it says about this one that would come, that would take away the sins of the people. It says, he grew up before us like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. In other words, not a really strong tree, really strong shoot, because it comes out of not real rich soil. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. When this Messiah, the one who's going to save the world comes, he will be despised and forsaken of men. He'll be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And like from one who men hide their face, he's despised and people, someone we did not esteem. This is amazing. I want you to think about this for a second. You're God. You can come on earth and any way you want to reveal yourself. What kind of body are you going to give yourself? What kind of look are you going to have? Because it's so easy to tell people what matters is not the outside, but the inside. But when you got a chance to go, okay, well, I'm going to go down there and roll for 33 years and I'm going to let them beat the crap out of me and nail me to a cross. So I may as well look good when I'm stripped naked, hanging there. I would go fair, all right, it's fair. Throw Aquaman on the cross, that would make sense to me. It's not what he did. Because there was something else that allowed him to go to a cross and when people betrayed him and beat him, to say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they did. This is so interesting, when God is talking to Samuel and telling Samuel to appoint a king, in 1 Samuel 16, 7, this is what he says. He says, but the Lord said to Samuel, don't look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I've rejected him right now at that age. David, at this point, wasn't this impressive individual. We're gonna find out a little bit later, David was an attractive man, but at this point, he said, don't look for great stature. For God sees not as man sees, for a man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Hey, it's okay to be pretty and handsome, 
But you better make sure that what's inside is really right. Man, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. Bodies deteriorate. Persons develop. One of the biggest mistakes that we make at the age many of us in this room are is that we go just totally swayed by the outward appearance. And that outward appearance is going to change. Let me just tell you something. Bodies deteriorate but persons develop. And you want to marry somebody that is committed to becoming more beautiful as they age. I don't care how much they nip and tuck. Mother nature will win. But I'm going to also encourage you when you go to the father who loves us and seek him, you become more beautiful every day. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a person who fears the Lord is to be praised. Let me just give you something. You know, it's, so, it's so interesting. I'm just going to walk you through just a couple of points here real quick, and I'm going to get to kind of the main heart of our message very quickly. But here's just a few things. Right now, when we're kind of in our 20s, some of us aren't taking care of our physical body. And you can get away with it. I mean, my kids have said this to me. i now got kids that are in this room. All right? And i got to tell you how many times they looked at me and go, oh, man, when I'm your age, I guarantee you, I'm still going to be able to throw it down and dunk. I go, uh-huh. All right, I'm writing that down right now, all right? And I just watch them, you know? When you're, when you're 18 to 26, I don't care if you just, you know, if you think a Cheeto's a carrot and you eat it all day long, your metabolism is just chewing everything up and you just look good in the family photo with your shirt always off, right? But here's the thing. You don't realize that you're developing patterns and you don't realize that that metabolism is not always going to fire at that rate. And it's just a fact that practicing disobedience in our life without immediate consequence, it's the fastest way to grow bolder in disobedience in the future when you won't have much margin for error later. It's why you want to discipline your body right now and not make it your master but you want, to, you want to learn right now in your youth and in your strength to conduct yourself in a way that's going to be a blessing your whole entire life. But let me just say this. Spiritually, this is true too. Practicing disobedience right now in your spiritual life without immediate consequence is the fastest way to grow bolder in your disobedience in the future. In other words, some of you guys are out there and you're like, hey man, I've not really been walking with God, not really seeking God, and it hasn't really messed with me too much yet. But let me just tell you what we say here all the time. And that is that we don't find people who get married who really have marriage problems. We find out that they got single people problems that they just dragged into marriage. So many folks are still under the illusion, man, that pornography is a single man's problem. So many people are still under the illusion that they can just flip a switch one day and stop thinking the way they do about the way that a man should conduct himself, a woman should conduct herself. And that flip doesn't switch. That switch doesn't flip. I say that backwards all the time. I heard it. That switch doesn't flip. Just quite as easily as we think. The scripture says this in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11. Watch this. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of men and women among them are given fully to do evil. Now here's what's crazy is that God comes up against men and women who are committed to do evil and he's trying to make himself known because he loves you. Can I just tell you something? God's not mad at you in your lack of self-care. He sees you throbbing. He sees you reaching after things that are no gods at all and trying to make them gods and not seeing that they can be used properly when you see them for who God created, what God created them to be. Instead, you're making them something that they're not and they're hurting you because you're misusing that gift 
That chainsaw, which would make your life easier, you're using as dental floss, and you have the scars to prove it. He's not mad at you, man. He just loves you. And he just says, you know, you like what you got, then keep doing what you're doing. But if you keep doing what you're doing, you're not going to like what you got. Are you sick and tired of being sick and tired? Then come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. God is committed to making himself known. This is what the scripture says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. This is encouraging to me. God is more anxious to know me and to seek me than I will ever be to know, want to know him or seek him. Is that not amazing? You don't got to hire some Sherpa and get some yak and find the right mountain in the Nepalese you know, mountain range and make your way up a hill and find the right cave where some swami is gonna impart to you a little bit of information that might help you. God has come. And he's told you he loves you and he's made himself known. And he's standing at the door and knocking and he says, if, 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 if you hear my voice and open the door, I will come into them and dine with him and he with me. God's committed to making himself known. Those who seek him will know him. Seek and you'll find. I'm not hiding, I'm right here. And those who know him will learn to live for him. See, here's the thing. I, I, I am not performing that God might accept me. I see the way God accepts me and loves me. And I am trying to respond to that. Why wouldn't I move towards the God who loves me so much that in my forsaking him, he rescued me? The scripture says this in Romans 8. It says, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also give us everything else that we need? It's just the logic of, look, he left the comfort of heaven. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that in your poverty you might become rich. A God that will do that. Do you think this is just some kind of um, setup? You think it's a shell game? You think it's a bait and switch? Hey, here's what we'll do. We'll go die for them, and then when they love us, We'll jack with them. It's not the program. He's trying to bring you home in a way that doesn't in any way diminish his character because make no mistake, God will always not let the guilty go punished. But so that you may not be among the guilty, he has brought you out of judgment into life. That's who God is. And those who know him will begin to seek him. And living for him means dying to yourself. And dying to yourself is the hardest discipline. It's the hardest discipline. But spiritual disciplines, it's the way that you go about learning more of God. Spiritual disciplines are what enable us to live for him. To live in a way that will lead to blessing. And what I want to just spend some time talking to you about is what this idea of self-care is through what's called spiritual discipline. Spiritual disciplines get a bad rap, right? We think spiritual disciplines are, are these things that we do, and they're not so much things we do as they are things that do something to us. What's the something? Think of this. God is light and life and love. And so when you discipline yourself to spend more time with a God who is light and life and love, you're going to get more light in your life more love in your life and less darkness and despair. 
Spiritual disciplines are not. Let me just walk you through this because when you hear the word discipline, we immediately kind of go, man, I don't like that. I don't want to discipline myself. Well, you do, right? Because discipline is the heavy door that leads to freedom. Spiritual disciplines are not a spiritual to-do list of activities that will make us love God more. They They don't make us love God more. It's what we do because we see that God is love. I do these things because I want to move towards the God who gives grace and glory. I want to move towards the God who's got my best interest in mind. I want to move to the God who's going to let sex be a blessing to me. I want to move toward the God who's going to show me how to operate in this world and world and sanctify everything by the word of God and by intimacy with him because he's a divine creator. Spiritual disciplines are not a spiritual to-do list of activities that make us love God more. They're not a way to show our love for God. We don't show God our love through the spiritual disciplines. We show God our love by having been intimate with him, living the way that it delights to see, that he delights to see us live. There is no greater joy than to watch your children walking in the truth, not because I can be like some amazing parent in the eyes of everybody else, but because I love it when my kids are blessed. I love when my kids are doing things that don't destroy their life. Spiritual disciplines, watch this, are not an unrealistic activity designed only for the spiritually elite and well-educated. That's not what they are. (laughs) You guys... um, you guys know the whole Peloton craze that's out there, right? The Peloton craze is, 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 is what's crazy about the Peloton craze is just not how much it costs, but, but then that, that 40 bucks a month that you gotta just keep on giving and keep on giving. But have you ever looked at a Peloton ad? There, there was a great thing that literally just last month, somebody jumped on Twitter and started to make some observations about Peloton ads, about people who use Peloton. And here's just a series of them. They put these pictures up there and the guy just said this. Hey, I had my carpenter build a $9,000 finished wood riser for my Peloton bike in my glass enclosed Zen garden home gym. (laughs) Every time you see a Peloton ad, it's always these like supremely, like these people who just won the CrossFit championships for four years in a row, living in some like unbelievable spot. Here's one. Hey, a good place for you to ride your Peloton bike is between your kitchen. No, sorry. I put my Peloton bike in the, in the center, this is the one with, uh, in New York, I put my Peloton bike in the center of a panoramic living room uh, in my window in my New York penthouse. I like this one. A good place for your Peloton bike is between your kitchen and your living room, facing the cactus garden so you can always remember your virtual spin class. How about this one? I took my Peloton bike to Europe to use it on the balcony of our $2,000 a night Airbnb. And honestly, I felt like I was flying over London. You should buy one. This is my favorite right here, this, this one. Sometimes I move the Peloton bike into our gallery so I can spend time with my metrosexual husband while he reads Architectural Digest wearing combat boots. <laughs> it's hilarious. My bright and airy sunroom is a great place for the Peloton bike. I leave the Arcadia door ajar so I actually feel like I'm riding a bicycle. My Peloton is in the living room because it's my favorite work of art aside from the turquoise marble peacock I keep in the fireplace. (laughs) In the mornings after my housekeeper meticulously makes my bed, I like to ride my Peloton bike in the window of my high rise and literally look down my nose at people. 
So funny. Uh, I'll skip to the last one here. I put the Peloton bike in the kitchen of our loft so I can get a workout and also cook the vegan three bean tortilla soup I downloaded from Goop. I just, these, these crack me up. Sometimes when you look at these Peloton ads like this, it's like, man, the Peloton is only for really beautiful, fit, rich people who can make like a $9,000, you know, handcrafted wood mount for their Peloton bike. Sometimes I think we have this mindset that the spiritual disciplines are only for people like, with names like Spurgeon and Edwards. And they're not. That's not what they are. They're the means of life for all of us. They're not legalistic activities to make us feel guilty about what we're not doing. Spiritual disciplines are not um, are, are things we do so we can look spiritual to others. This is so important. We're not spiritual narcissists. We, we don't become people who are conformed to the image of God so that people can go, wow, you're really godly. No, what the Lord does for us is never just for us. Remember what I said? The reason you care for yourself, the reason you want the blessing of God is so that you can be a blessing. That was God's program from the beginning. From the very first time he developed and pursued a relationship with a man. He said, I'm gonna bless the world through you because you've got a relationship with me. The goal is not that we do the spiritual disciplines or soul care. The goal is that we have intimacy with God. Why does God want us to have intimacy with him? Because he's the God who gives grace and glory and because he loves you. He's not looking for you to read your Bible so you can read your Bible. He's looking for you to read your Bible because that's where your loving Heavenly Father speaks. And he wants to encourage you to walk in the paths of life. The, the, the ancient path, where the good way is. This is what spiritual discipline is. This is what soul care is. It's a means of grace so that we can receive life from our loving Father. It's how we get near Jesus, right? If Jesus was alive, if I told you guys that you could spend time with Jesus, what would you do? You'd want to go everywhere he goes. You'd want to listen to him speak. And what's so amazing is that the the priorities and the habits of a disciple today are the exact same as they were 2,000 years ago. Except that we don't have to wait in line because it's not just one physical embodiment of God. Now we've been brought near to him through the provision of Jesus Christ and we can have intimacy with our Father. And we can come boldly before the throne of grace. And he's recorded the messages that Jesus gave and he lives and speaks to us in the context of prayer rightly understood promptings that the Spirit will give us always is informed by Scripture. Jesus practiced the spiritual disciplines when he was here. Why? Because when he came, he never denied the fact that he was God. He never stopped being God, but he didn't grasp onto that. That's not the way he got through life. He identified with you and me. And so again and again, you'll see these things. Like in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, it says, in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus would get up and he'd leave other people. He'd leave the house. He'd go to a secluded place and he would spend time with the Father. He would just say, Lord, remind me of your love for people. Remind me. Well, I want to maintain the identity with humanity and not just on my own, start acting like God, but depend upon you to give me insight, to let the Spirit of God use me to do amazing things. But what happens is so many of us, we just try to live like Jesus wants us to live. And we don't do the things to care for our spiritual heart and our spiritual center, so we can't. There is a world of difference between trying and training. Trying is a flawed strategy. There's a huge difference between being wanting and being willing. 
And I just want to encourage you guys with this. You're never going to want to be closer to God than he's going to want to be close to you. Let me ask you three questions. Are you ready? Do you want to be a godly man or a woman? I mean, just ask yourself that. If, if, if you could be the glory that God intended humankind to be, do you want to be that? Second question. Are you a godly man or woman? Right now, are you a godly man? Are you a godly woman? Now, if the answer to their first question was yes, and the answer to your second question was no, it's because you answered the first question wrong. Because here's the third question. Does God want you to be a godly man or a godly woman? You bet he does. So if God wants you to, and you say you want to, why aren't you? And the answer is because so many of us say we want to and we try to, but we don't do the thing that will allow us to find the healing and the strength that God wants us to find. This is Proverbs 13, verse four. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. In other words, the soul of the sluggard wants everything that the soul of the diligent wants, but the soul of the diligent actually gets what the sluggard only wants. Proverbs 13, four. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. Do you want to be a godly man? Yes, Todd. Are you a godly person? Or, or second question would be, does God want you to be a godly person? Yes. Are you a godly person? No. And it's because you answered that first question wrong. God is committed to conforming you into the image of his son. And the way that you're going to get there is by spending time with him. So many people talk about how hard the spiritual disciplines are. And the truth is that embracing the spiritual disciplines is freedom. Freedom is the reward of discipline. I had a good friend when I grew up, one of my best friends growing up, was a guy that when we were all out doing what 12 and 11 and 13-year-olds did, his mom would whistle him in, and he would always have to go and go and practice tennis. A little bit later, my friend had the freedom to win Wimbledon. My friend had the freedom to win a U.S. Open. My friend had the freedom to win the Australian Open. My friend had the freedom to win the French Open. My friend had a freedom to be the first American to win a gold medal in tennis because he disciplined himself to be an amazing tennis player. I played tennis with him on the same high school team. I just didn't play tennis all the time like he did. I was a typical kid who kind of dabbled in it and went my way, and I didn't have the freedom to keep competing. Freedom comes through discipline. Discipline and self-care is the, the heavy practice of diligence that leads to what it is that we all want. So how do we practice it? How are we supposed to practice these things? And I would just say this. You want to do it patiently with yourself. Be a little patient with yourself. You don't grow spiritually mature overnight. Most of us overestimate what we can do in a week. But we underestimate what God can do in our life in a year. And so I would encourage you just to start simply and simply start. The way you practice the disciplines is just on a long, steady life of pursuit. You don't grow up overnight. You can't will yourself to be more godly. It just takes patience and endurance and steadfastness. Start simply and simply start. Secondly, not just patiently, but do it continually. Just continually. The spiritual disciplines um, 
are not separated from our daily lives. It's not something we do for 30 minutes and then we just move on. Jesus says, follow me. That's a continual action. Jesus says, abide with me. That means remain in constant conversation with me. Jesus says, don't just read the Bible, but meditate on it, memorize it. Make sure it doesn't depart from your mouth. Jesus says, get around other people that will encourage you. We do it patiently and we do it continually. It's a fact that if we sow a thought, we're gonna eventually reap an action. If we sow an action, we're gonna eventually reap a habit. If we sow a habit, we're gonna eventually reap a character. If we sow a character, eventually we're gonna reap a destiny. And so the thought that is in your mind day by day ought to be God is good and kind and gracious, and I don't want to miss him. People think about the cost of discipleship being so heavy, but we forget what the cost of non-discipleship is. Listen to this statement. Here's the cost of not knowing the God who gives grace and glory, not knowing the God who makes you and restores the the glory that he intended for you. Non-discipleship costs abiding peace. Anybody here struggle with anxiety? Non-discipleship creates a life penetrated throughout um, without love without faith that sees everything in the light of God's overriding governance for good hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances, power to do what is right and withstand the forces of evil. Non-disciples don't have that. In short, it costs exactly the same abundance of life that Jesus said he came to bring. The cross-shaped yoke of Christ is after all an instrument of liberation and power to correct perspective is to see following Christ not only is the necessity it is, but the fulfillment of the highest human possibility and his life on the highest plane. The cost of non-discipleship means that you lose the freedom to lead yourself and eventually one day lead a family in a way that's gonna to lead to blessing. The cost of non-discipleship and self-care is the inability to um, resist temptation, to use scripture in a way that would bring strength to your life and then grace to the life of others. And God's saying, can I help you? We do it patiently, we do it consistently, and we also don't do it alone. We say here all the time that that if you don't change your playground where you're kind of um, hanging around all the time and what is the activity of your life, it's not gonna go well with you. So you gotta change your playground. You gotta change what you're sowing into your life in terms of what your thought is. And you gotta pay attention to what God said is gonna be life-giving. You can't go and eat you know, we say this all the time, right? You don't just sit there and take a Cheeto and eat it and while you're you know, saying, God, would you please change the molecular structure of this Cheeto into a carrot as I take it down and swallow it? That can be a fervent prayer. It's just not the way God works. He's like, no, put the Cheeto down and grab a carrot. <laughs> Quit binge watching Game of Thrones and approach the throne of grace. When I was in my 20s, about your age, I had um, I'd played sports my whole life. I was an athlete. I wasn't a guy that was such a non-athlete that my sport was just to run in a long straight line until everybody collapsed, okay? I would make fun of my friends that were runners. But then this whole craze started sweeping the country and it was 10K races. I had no idea what 10K was. I thought 10,000 steps, who can't run 10,000 steps? And so my friends go, Wagner, you couldn't run a 10K in any kind of time that was reasonable. I go, oh, yes, I could. What's a reasonable time? They go, I don't know. And they kind of figure it out in their mind. And they go, well, eight minute mile is, you know, not a terrible mile, but let's just say it's going to be like a seven minute mile. And so they just did the math real quick in the head and said, I bet you cannot run a 10K in under 45 minutes. Like, well, how far is a 10K? 10,000 steps? 5,280 steps is a mile. I can run two miles in 45. They go, it's 6.2 miles. 
but I was young and stupid and foolish. I'd never run more than a mile for time in the sports that I played. And I go, I can do that. And they go, I'll bet you dinner anywhere in Dallas on the other guy's dime. I go, done. That was Thursday. <laughs> Saturday was the first 10K I was ever going to run. All I had was basketball shoes. I, was, I, I, played, I played that sport longer than any other. I put my basketball shoes on and go, okay, I'm going to go run 3.1 miles just to kind of see if I can do that in roughly 20 minutes. And then it'll give me a chance to have a little extra time to finish the other ones. So in a pair of basketball shoes on Thursday about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I went and ran 3.1 miles and it wasn't in 20 minutes. And I got home and I go, this is not going to work. I went to Luke's locker. I bought my first ever pair of running shoes that night because I realized running in, you know, basketball shoes was not the way to do it. And I got a friend and I said, hey, I need you to help me. This guy was a runner. I said, I need you to pace me. Have you seen this? There is, um, there's today, they didn't have this when I was running, but like if you go run in marathons or 10Ks, you'll have people like this. And what they are, are folks that will mark how you're running, right? So if you want to run the 10K in eight, you know, in, in, in uh, under 50 minutes, you follow the person that's running the 830 mile. If you want to run it, you know, in 45 minutes, you follow somebody else who runs another mile in a certain distance. And there's different paces there that you can figure out how fast you're going to run to run the race. Well, let me just say this to you before I give you this last little closing illustration. Some of my friends in the 26, 27, 28 years old, when they decided to run their first 10K because they ran long distances when they were in high school and competed at four and a half or five minute miles, for them, eight years later, to run a six minute mile was no big deal because they had conditioned themselves at a young age to run. I hadn't. Basketball is a lot of short bursts. Football is a lot of short bursts. You just got to make your time for a mile and then you're good. I had never run that way before. And so for me, all of a sudden, to run a seven-minute mile six times in a row was not going to be easy. I had had, in a 10K vernacular, I had the wrong playmates. And we could do a lot of other things, but we could not run the way that we were going to run if we are going to pop off about how we could run. Some of you guys are doing the same thing. And you're around some people that are going to, you know, kind of hold up, you know, eight minute and 30 second miles and your life is filled with anxiety. You know, you're going to be around people who run 10 minute miles and you're addicted. That's where this heads. I mean, if the goal is to run a four minute mile, that's world-class. That's a glorious mile. I mean, that's like world-class. Then you can't be hanging out with people who go, we're just going to kind of skip through life and be churchgoers. More moral than most. I mean, we're not invalids, but we're not glorious either. We're people that are struggling with, you know, divorce later in our life. Because this is, you know, a whole lot better than most. But man, it's a whole lot better than people that are a whole lot better than most. Whose marriages are not what they dreamed about. Not bad, right? But not life. One of the reasons that my life now a little bit later doesn't look like some of these words is because when I was your age, I wasn't running 10Ks. But I was disciplining myself to run with Jesus. And I gotta tell you, running the four minute mile of being what I would say by the grace of God was somebody who didn't binge watch Game of Thrones or Seinfeld or whatever the show was in the 80s. But I binged on Matthew and Mark and Philippians and Colossians and Proverbs and Psalms. Is I've run a four-minute mile now for about 30 years, and I'm just going to tell you, it's the good way. 
And I didn't win just some dinner anywhere that I want. I sit around my dinner table with a wife of my youth and she loves me and my kids respect me. By and large, I'm a source of grace to my community. Don't give the devil your youth. Right now is the time to start running. Right now, because you want to the rest of your life, maybe as life gets a little bit busier, you're never gonna have more time to seek God than you do right now. It doesn't get easier. Use your good mind and your strength of days to cement your relationship with Christ. That's what you wanna do. The one who gives grace and glory, run to him. The one who no good thing does he withhold from those who love him, run with him. The one who is in presence is the fullness of joy. In his right hand are, are pleasures forever. The one who, it's the blessing of him that makes rich. And he has no sorrow to it. The one, when you are humble before him and fear him, it leads to riches, honor, and life. Right now, folks, is when you want to start running with Jesus. This is a young man's God because he wants you to have not just provision for the other life, but godliness has great gain for this life also. And I'm just telling you, as a guy that learned to run with other people who were running four-minute miles in my 20s, it's been a blessing for 30 years. Father, I pray that my friends in this room would run hard right now. They would take care of themselves now. They wouldn't go, ah, it's not a big deal that I can't you know, train right now because I'm young and young people can do 10Ks in decent time. The scars aren't there yet. The plaque hasn't filled their life yet, but it's coming. It's coming. So I pray that they would right now, Lord, that they would start caring for their bodies and realizing that the way they're training now to walk with you and to know you is gonna be a blessing for the marathon that is the game of life. And I pray they'd be patient with themselves. I pray they would do it continually and I pray they wouldn't do it alone, that they would find other people here and in other places that are committed to running hard with you, running with Jesus, so that there can be um, a group of men and women here that others can draft with and learn from and that they can be a source of grace of life indeed. Would you convince us, Father, that you are the God who gives grace and glory and would you help us start to run where there is life in Jesus' name.